Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to see him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord would say to the church this morning? Give us eyes to see. Give us minds that would understand, that would comprehend, and hearts then that would respond. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Well, I had a, every now and then this happens where I have this like full idea of where I was going to go and I had this big kind of nerdy presentation on the authenticity of scripture and why it's important for us to know what we know because as some of you may know, this text, as the brackets go around it and depending upon the version of the Bible we have, it, uh, there's a lot of disagreement as to whether or not this text is meant to be in this spot in Scripture or even in Scripture as a whole. And as I was sitting comfortably at home last night, ready to just kind of come in and nerd out on all kinds of things like this, I really felt the Lord pushing on me to say, um, I think there's more to this text that we need to understand. And although there is some discrepancy on the, uh, the authenticity of whether or not this is here or if this was supposed to be in the Gospel of John, I believe there's some truth in this text that is important for us to understand. And so instead of nerding out and, and getting kind of all excited about all the history of Scripture and the authenticity of it, I'm going to do something a little bit differently, and that is I'm going to teach the, the character of Jesus that we see in this that is true to him no matter where we are in Scripture. And so as this text comes, you'll see some of it has brackets. It starts 753, goes 8 through 11, 8 verse 11. And in this text, we see that, that this kind of, it, it seemingly pops in in a really weird spot because eight, chapter 8, verse 12 kind of continues with the lights on the Feast of Tabernacles. So we just came out of the, the Feast of Tabernacle at the end of, of verse 52, and then chapter 12, or verse 8, verse 12, picks up and starts talking about the lights. He says, I am the light, and he gets back into the Feast of Tabernacles. And so there are a lot of uh, early manuscripts, in fact, the Greek New Testament, where we get all of our, um, the earliest manuscripts, they don't have this text 
this 753 through 811, in, in it at all. In fact, there's, there's a lot of disagreement. A lot of the early church fathers and the rewriting of it as they've written out Scripture, and we've seen these things. If you have spent any time like nerding out on what Scripture is or, or how we have it, there are some 5,800 manuscripts, either partial or full, of the New Testament that we have preserved over time from people rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. 5,800. There's, there's not a single bit of ancient history that even comes to like half that amount. And we have them over and over and over again. And in the earliest manuscripts, this isn't there. And theologians, smart people, have argued back and forth as to why it should be. It's been placed kind of after uh, verse 32 in chapter 7 or even after verse 44. Some say it doesn't belong in John at all, and I think that they're probably right there because of a few things in the, in the writing. One is John never uses the term scribes other than right here. We see, we see him saying Mount of Olives only once, and, and yet that is something that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, use over and over again. We see him using rabbi or teacher, and he only uses that once to define what rabbi means earlier on in this text, but doesn't use it again. And so a lot of the writing doesn't actually lend itself to being done by the Apostle John. But yet, a lot of theologians argue that maybe the reason why this story got plucked into the middle of this section is because in seven cha- or chapter 7, verse 24, and then uh, chapter 8, verse 15, we see two commands to not judge by outward appearances. We see in this, this story, no matter whether or not it belongs here, I think most believe that it probably belongs in chapter 20 or 21 of Luke, if it at all belongs. It showed up again kind of after a little bit of time and, and started working itself in, but every single scribe that wrote it had little asterisks or marks saying this wasn't where it was, and it looked like it was just a set of scripture that just didn't have a home. And in all honesty, like we take very, very seriously the value and the importance of teaching scripture. And so there may not be the authority of this story. If this was never meant to be here, I don't want the authority of this story to be something that you rest in, but recognize the authority of all Scripture is true. This may not be here. We know it shows up, Eusebius uh, and the Pyrrhus, a uh, writing that shows up kind of in place. Augustine says it was in place. We have a lot of different theories. And one of the reasons why people believe that this got kind of annexed from writing was because of Jesus' seemingly gentleness and mercy to an absolutely atrocious sin it just didn't feel right how could a man just say i don't judge you i don't condemn you either after what she had done and so there's all kinds of theories as to why it doesn't belong here again as i studied and looked at i do not believe myself to be smarter than any of the church fathers i think that this is a story that happens where it sits we don't know The reason why I say that is because if you look at this text, there's nothing in here that is incongruent with the character of Jesus. There's nothing in here that that sets us in a spot where we go, wow, Jesus would never do that. A friend of sinners? Weird. You know, like extending mercy and grace? That seems weird. Why would he do that? And then the the opposition that comes at him, the, the religious leaders, it just fits perfectly with the opposition that he gets in the Gospel of Luke that's recorded for us. Just fits perfectly. And the fact that he goes to Mount of Olives, he stayed most likely with Lazarus and in that area. It, again, it, it fits in the context of Jesus' life. We just don't know where. Most likely closer to the end of his life on earth. But instead of just geeking out on all that stuff and, and going through the, you know, the 1,500 years of preservation of Scripture that kind of has been placed for us and the, 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 the councils that put Scripture together, again, all that is powerful and wonderful and, and something that I think every one of us should spend time studying. Instead, I just wanted to, to look at the character of Jesus in this story today. 
Because I think if we are honest with ourselves, we don't like this story. Because, because the reality is, is all of us, at one point or another, are at risk or are currently operating fairly pharisaical. We like to try and see in this story, well, who would I be? Would I be the person that was the crowd watching on? Or would I be the, would I be the religious leaders that kind of drug this woman before Jesus in this place? Or would I be the, would I be the woman? And, and the reality is, is, is every single one of us is, is one of those characters at different points in our life. See, most of us have, if you spend any time in the church, we have that sin, that thing that we just can't stand. We have that sin that we see in someone's life, and it may, it maybe it's a, a sexual sin. Like I said, again, there, there's a lot of understanding. This was a very taboo thing that this woman had done in here, and Jesus' response just seems too merciful to accept. But many of us, we have that sin, that thing that we see in someone else, that, that is the, the first thing that we are so quick to want to drag that person before Jesus. Every single one of us have it. So here's Here's the setting. This is the scenario. The, the setting is Jesus is, is most likely, he's sitting on the, the temple mount, the temple women. He's, he's in the area where all the people can be, and he sits and teaches, which sitting again was, a, was reserved for a rabbi to teach on the temple mount. And here's Jesus teaching with all this opposition, and he's teaching who knows what. Wonderful, I'm sure it's brilliant. I wish we had it recorded. We could listen to it and hear all the amazing ways that he did it. And he's sitting there, he's teaching, and this scenario, and, and in this point, he'd be sitting on something, and there'd be a crowd around him, as, as all rabbis kind of would come around to listen, and the more popular the rabbi was, or the more intrigued they were by the rabbi, the teacher, there'd be a larger crowd. So it's safe to say at this point, especially depending upon where this hits, Jesus is pretty popular. So it's safe to say there's this massive crowd watching Jesus as he's teaching. And I want, I want you just to picture this scenario for one moment. Here he is teaching about who knows what something brilliant, something wonderful. And these religious leaders come dragging a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Caught in the act. So it's not like she came presentable, came ready to have a conversation. It wasn't like she was standing before trial. Instead, she's being drugged, interrupting a teacher in front of these people to Jesus' foot and saying, hey, this woman has been caught. Now, what's important for us to know and another reason why I think a lot of people have, have struggled with this is that they come in and they say, as the law of Moses says. Now, what we don't know is, and again, we don't know how, how this story plays out. We, like I said, we have other writings outside of Scripture that talk about a story very similar to this that, that could be the same. But ultimately, if this woman was caught in adultery, there's a very specific laws on what we're supposed to do. And so they come and they, they present her and say, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery. The law says that we should stone her. Well, now, okay, to be really clear, the law that they're talking about is out of, is out of Leviticus 20 or Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 through 24. And there's actually, there's, there's a lot of questions that are left with this law. The, the, kind of the, the themes that hit this section is just, it's unbelievable. The, the unyielding judgment with lack of compassion that these men have dragging this woman before Jesus the unmerited mercy that Jesus shows are the center page of the story. Yet his response is something that I think we must, we must just sit in today. Because here they come dragging this woman in place. And they, they bring this law. Now, the, the thing is, is, the authorities quote 
the law of Moses, but the, the law of Moses, it depends on the, the condition with which the woman was in. Was she single? Was she engaged, betrothed, or was she married? Because those are the different rules. If she, was, if she was betrothed, if she was a virgin betrothed to be married, that's the only law that said she should be stoned to death. The death was still the, 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 the reality, but it was usually strangulation for the other positions. So here's a woman that we assume because they're saying in this, in this place, they're saying that she has been caught in the act. Now, here's the other thing that we have to understand about the law. The law also requires that, that for this to happen, there have to be two witnesses. And it's very specific. They have to be eyewitnesses catching her in the act, not before, not after, not assumptions. It has to be caught in the act. They have to see it. Now, there's also a law, and this is what's really interesting. There's also a law that if you see your brother or sister about to do something that is sin, that you are supposed to help engage, stop them. So, so it's safe to say that these individuals that, that caught this woman in, in adultery, they did so by most likely setting up a scenario or sitting and waiting for the opportune time to do it. I mean, there, I guess there's a possibility that they happened to just stumble across it. I think that's unlikely, especially as, as taboo as it was and as hidden this would have been in their culture. In fact, some people believe that this is probably one of these men might be their, her husband or a betrothed one. But what's also really interesting is about the law that they're quoting. The law doesn't say that the woman must be stoned to death. It says that they shall be put to death. It's not just one. So where's the man? If she was caught in the act, why is he not standing with her? Did he escape? Did he, did he talk his way out? Was this a setup? Was this a stage? Was she just a, a kind of a pawn to see if they could trap Jesus in this place? So it's, it's all a mess. In fact, the fact that they brought her to Jesus really wasn't the right person to bring him to anyways. Should have brought her to the Sanhedrin. If she was really caught, this is what they should have done. And they didn't have to bring her, drag her out in that moment. They could have put her in, in, in holding and then had the trial the way that their, their laws had told them to do so. But instead, they used this moment, this very public, crass, horrible moment to bring this woman out in front of everyone and say, look at what she's done. What about the man? Why was he not brought before Jesus? Was the husband among the accusers? What was the nature of the woman's matrimonial state? There are so many things that are unanswered here. We don't know. But yet, these individuals came ready to convict her based on really trying to entrap Jesus. And this is what they say. Is they're trying to trap him. Because here's the, here's the trap. Should Jesus extend mercy to her? Should he, should he be merciful and say that he is not going to do anything? Well, then he's, he's in a position not upholding the law of Moses. And should he say stone her? Well, that puts him in two problems. One is that goes in contrary to what they've already started to see him as is this forgiving, gentle, loving individual. But also, they had no right to enact this without the Romans in place. They had every right to do every kind of other law that they wanted to except for executing someone had to be done through Rome. So should Jesus say, why, yes, pick up those stones and throw it. Do this. Then he puts himself in, in, in Rome's crosshairs. And so it was the perfect trap for Jesus, right? The perfect trap to stop. And then Jesus does what he does always. This is why this, this scripture is not like, what? He did what? He always does. He dumbfounds them. He answers it perfectly true to the law at the same point requiring of them 
to not just be engaged in their pharisaical head knowledge of what they are right or wrong, but getting into their heart and saying, trying to pull at their heart and get them there. See, this story has all the features of the setup. One scholar says it this way, where only the poor woman is presented, not her partner. The parameters are defined in such a way that mercy and justice are made to be opposing principles, which, let's just be honest, that's something that we continually wrestle with today. To choose either one would call for the condemnation of Jesus because he would be viewed in, on the one hand of being against the law of Moses, on the other hand of advocating a mob action involving capital punishment, which was only the province of the Romans. And Jesus does something so beautiful. He, he weaves the line where their trap is completely pointless. And he draws at the heart. And this is what I love about what Jesus does. And this is why I think this is so important for us to understand is that in a moment of a crowd, I mean, maybe hundreds of people, maybe just 50, we don't know. In a, in a moment of a crowd, he's able to teach and correct and at the same point not miss the individual who's standing before him as a sinner. It's, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. If we could just think about that as a moment when we're, do, when we're walking in life and we're thinking about doing justice or mercy and recognizing like, wait, they, they aren't in opposition. In fact, we see them reconciled in the cross in Jesus Christ. And he does a profound job of, of confronting the accusers, accusing the accusers, mitigating the crowd, and all the while meeting the sinner right where she's at. It's absolutely beautiful. So where do we fit into the story? Where do you and I fit in the story? Jesus bends down and he starts doing something in the sand, and it would, it's complete conjecture to try and understand what he's done. In fact, some scholars have thought, like, if he's standing in one spot, he could get a total of 16 characters in Hebrew, so then he must have written one of these three verses. It's all conjecture. We don't know what he's writing. But Jesus, as, as they come to him, he, he kneels down and he starts writing in the sand, and oh man, I could, we could write a billion great sermons on, on what we think he's saying, but we have no idea. What we know is that whatever he's saying, it's not enough to, to retort the crowds. It's not enough to get them to go somewhere. But whatever he's writing with what he says does something in the hearts of every individual around there that they cannot stand present. They can't stay put. Now, is he writing out the law? Deuteronomy 17, 7, the characters would fit in Hebrew if you were sitting in one spot. The idea that, that the actual witnesses are the ones that are supposed to be the first ones to throw the stone. Hey, if you're the one that's bringing him first, you have to be the first one to do this. So he's not just saying, he's not advocating that you have to be without sin to, to, to see any kind of justice. Our, our, our life would be a mess if that was the case, if we had to be perfect before justice could be enacted. But what he's doing is he's establishing, look, the law says if you caught them in the act, if you caught them in the act, you are the one that must first throw the stone. And then the others will join in. That's very clear. We see that in multiple different times through the law. We also see that he's writing this, and he says, if anyone was without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, this is a direct reference to Deuteronomy 13, 9, 17:7, also Leviticus 24, 14, if you want to go read those later, where the witnesses of the crime must be the first to throw the stones. They must not be participants in the crime itself, though. And this is what puts them in a hard spot. Because the way that they're bringing her to him is not in any way true to the way the law should be upheld. 
even if, even if they did catch her and it was a, a moment where they caught her and they weren't able to stop it, where's he? Again, that doesn't make sense. And, and if they did do that, bringing her to Jesus doesn't make sense because he's not the one that can actually enact those rules or exact those rules. It's the Sanhedrin. It's the, it's the temple court. This is where they're supposed to go. But even if they did all of that, what's still missing is the recognition that Jesus isn't saying you need to be perfect. He's saying you cannot be breaking the law while accusing someone else of the law. In fact, should never bear a false witness. Maybe that's what he wrote, false witness. And one by one, specifically the text says, the older ones left first. And I love this. In a, in a culture where, where older people were, were revered, they were honored, they were people that we looked to, the fact that the olders left put, took all the, the fangs out of the crowd because there was no one younger that would have stayed in place and tried to continue to do this. But one by one, they left. So where do you and I fit in this story? See, I think every single one of us has a rock, which is why hopefully you were given a rock. If you weren't, grab the rock. If you, were given, if you weren't given a rock, the ushers and a couple other people will grab them. It's important that you have a rock because I think it's important for us to see this. And this is what the Lord did to me last night. See, every single one of us is ready. I mean, ready to judge someone. We are ready to throw the stone while ignoring the brokenness in our own heart. While justifying or mitigating or minimizing the very sinfulness that is in our own broken heart. And every single one of us is ready to throw this rock. You just need to figure out which sin it is. Is it addiction? Infidelity? Porn? Pride? All of us have that sin that we are so ready to start swinging. I mean, we're cocked and loaded. I can't throw, so you're all safe, don't worry. And we're all there. Every single one of us. See, I think many of us would love to say that, that we're the woman in this story or we're the crowd that was just kind of looking on and, and interrupted by the teaching. But in all honesty, every single one of us has a rock and we're carrying it around on a daily basis ready to throw at any moment that someone says it or even gives us an idea of it. And we think we're justified in doing so. We think we have every right to walk around and just like, just huck this at people. We do it on social media. Anyone that disagrees with us, we might as well just start throwing stones there too. Every single one of us has a rock. You want to know where you fit in the story? You're holding a rock, just like I am. But you want to know where else you fit in the story, and this is beautiful. You're the woman. You're the sinner. See, these, these religious leaders did something absolutely brilliant just with the complete wrong motives and, and done incorrectly. They brought a sinner to Jesus. That's where we belong. That's where we need to be is with Jesus. And yet, many of us keep taking steps back and back and back. And what ends up happening, as one theologian says, he says, Christ's forgiveness in each of our lives diminishes as we lose touch with the depth of our own sinfulness. When we no longer see ourselves in the drama of the woman, when we feel we are free from accusation and judgment, we lose sight of God's grace. Jesus is not simply committed to the requirements of the law, but to care and transformation of the woman before him. And every person who likewise brings a debt of sin into the circle where he sits, this drama of Jesus and the woman gains power when I become that woman and reflect on the seriousness of my own jeopardy. 
See, every single one of us has a rock. And every single one of us needs to be brought into the circle of Jesus with our sin. And it's in that moment when we come loaded with rocks, ready to throw, as pharisaical as pharisaical can be, completely hypocritical. And when we come and we get presented to Jesus Christ, a God who reconciles on the cross in the blood of Jesus Christ, his perfect justice and his perfect mercy and grace, we can't help but drop it. We can't help but lose it because it makes no sense for us to continue to carry these rocks because we have no right to condemn in that way. Now hear me on this. Please hear me on this. I'm not saying that we are not to judge the fruit in others. The scriptures are very clear. But we have no right to condemn someone else to death. How dare we condemn someone as to whether or not they are a part of Jesus' kingdom or not. That is not our place to judge. And when we recognize that we are the woman in this story, our sinfulness was brought to Jesus and there were accusers around us ready to throw every single stone at us. When we remember that, we're captivated not by the justice that was exacted on us, but by the grace of God. And we lose sight of this. And we lose sight of this. Instead, we love to sit in our pious little positions and hold our little stones and get ready to, to accuse anyone for not upholding the area that God has shown some victory. Let's be honest, the only victory you have is because of the Spirit of God living in you. How dare we take credit for that? Just because God has freed us from something that someone is completely enslaved to does not mean that we get a stand with a rock ready to throw it at him. They were right to bring her to Jesus. They just did it with the wrong motives and the wrong ways. And praise Jesus that he's Jesus because what did she meet? I think the reason why a lot of theologians didn't want her, this story in here, is because of the, the come on, Jesus, make her pay penance. Let her like clean the temple mount for a while at least because she did something wrong. Let's, let's see some punishment here. Let's be a little bit more punitive. And Jesus says, well, neither will I condemn you. And I tell you right now, the condemnation from anyone pales in comparison to him saying, I will not condemn you. When it comes to sin, we always want to know who's at fault. Who's more at fault? And I believe there's many situations where one party or one person has been more sinful than others, but let's just remember that we are all in need of God's grace and mercy. We were all sinners brought to the inner circle of Jesus. In fact, dare I say that we are people that are meant to do this with others, to bring people to Jesus, not in an accusation, uh, 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 excuse me, not in an accusation with a stone in hand ready to throw, but in a, hey, the only place you will find joy and hope and peace and love and kindness that will never fall out, that will never waste away, that will never leave you wanting is in Jesus Christ, so come be with him. The real problem is, is that we wallow in self-righteousness too often. And the problem with our self-righteousness, and hear me on this, is that it can cause others to believe that because of their sin, there is no room for them among God or God's people. Because of our willingness to become self-righteous when our righteousness is clothed by Jesus Christ's blood alone, nothing we did on our own. But in our self-righteousness, we start showing and telling to this world, hey, there's no place for you amongst God. Your sins are just too far for him. He, his love's ran out. Once you did it this time, oh, you did it again? There, no, nope, we're out. He's done. Problem is we misrepresent Jesus 
kind of like the Pharisees were doing. They misrepresented him. They pulled him in a, in, a, in a position that seemed impossible. Of course, Jesus was able to work it perfectly. But just for a moment, do you remember what it was like to be that woman? See, and here's, here's the reason why it's important that we remember this is because I think that we don't just have that one moment on the Temple Mount with Jesus where we remember that we were the woman. In fact, many of you right now feel like that woman. You've been experiencing brokenness in your life, either done to you or your own brokenness. Many of you feel that. And I think on a regular basis, this is why I said this is such a hard story for us, because on a regular basis, we're either the person with the stone in our hand or we're the woman in need of God's grace. And Jesus perfectly meets us in both places. He gives us no ability to throw a stone, all the while lifting us up and saying, neither will I condemn you. And then he gives a command, which is beautiful, just in case people are like, whoa, well, this grace thing, like, police here, like, well, hold on a second. He doesn't end there. That's right. He says, now go and sin no more. Walk in the grace that you've experienced. Probably the way that most of us sin after we've experienced grace is that we pick up a stone on that thing that God has freed us from and start getting ready to lob it at other people. Praise God that he's given you victory. Praise God that he's freed you. Praise God that he sat you in his inner circle and said, I do not condemn you. My justice, my mercy, my grace was reconciled on the cross in Jesus Christ, and now you can walk in the freeness of him. Don't pick up the stone. Don't do it. We're going to move into a time of communion. And as I was praying last night, I felt like there, you know, one of the things about, um, that was a lot louder on the stage, by the way. I wasn't trying to exactly, I wasn't trying to be dramatic, but it worked really well in my favor. Um, I think right now, the question that every single one of us need to ask, if you have the stone, pull it out, put it in your hand, is, is whose name's on that stone? See, the sad thing is right now, some of you know, like, you know whose name's there. You have an individual that you are ready to fling this rock at. You want to you know how I, I know? If you don't have a rock, the ushers, like I said, they'll give you one. Just put your hand up. You know. You've been sitting in judgment of someone else. You, 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 you know how you can tell? Let me give you some ideas. This will, this will make us all feel a little less comfortable, right? When you read something someone else says on social media and you instantly have that thought. When someone's celebrating something good around them and you instantly have some idea of like, I can't believe that they did that. You know, we see this over and over again. We've seen really famous people that have done absolutely atrocious things, like things that are, that are deserving of, of God's justice, and they have some life transformation. And we watch. Who are the people that argue about it? Christians. How dare they? They don't deserve God's grace. They deserve punishment. Man, that puts a boundary, a limit on God's grace. And so my question is, is you want to know where you have this rock? Where's the boundary of God's grace not extending to in your life? Where's that spot? It's like, oh, I'm fine with it until someone does this. Oops, whoa, 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 let's go. I'm good. I can forgive everyone. I'm fine. I don't need to do it. I'll just, everything's great. But yet you find yourself gossiping, sinning to talk poorly about someone else and their struggles. See, every single one of us has that thing. Every single one of us has it. The moment where we're so quick to pick it up and like, we'd say, oh, it's almost like, it's almost like, robotic in us. We just start throwing rocks at people. 
So where is it? Some of you, like I said, you have a name of someone. You have a name of someone that you have been condemning in your heart. You may, oh, I've never said that to him. Oh, good job. Way to just do it in your heart. <laughs> said no one ever. You know, it's interesting. Jesus, when he's attacking the Pharisees, arguing with them, he says, you, you fools, you, you, you tithe, and you do all these religious things, but you never engage the heart. Your religiousness of doing things right is just selfish righteous, self-righteousness masked in some kind of pious way of following Jesus. Unless your heart is engaged, it's not the right kind of righteousness. So where is it for you? Who? Whom? What people group? What individuals? What ideology? Are you just, man, whew, cocked and loaded, ready to go? Can't wait to fling this thing at it. But which, by the way, I can't picture a more horrific way of being crucified or being killed than being stoned to death. That should be an indicator of our hearts and our willingness to pick those stones even up. What an absolutely horrific thing. Who is it? Is it your spouse? Can't forgive him. Someone that hurt you in the past. And again, I am not minimizing or mitigating the sinfulness that has been done to you. But the instant we stand in the seat of judge, oh, dear Lord, he says he will judge us the way that we judge. That is not where we want to be. Who is it for you? And so what we're going to do, we're going to do something a little bit different. The, the band's going to come up. We're going to sing, and we're going to move into a time of communion. Communion is a beautiful symbol of, of, of partaking of bread and juice and faith that symbolizes the life that we have in Jesus Christ on the cross. In doing so, the Holy Spirit kind of nutri- nutri- uh, it, it spiritually nourishes us. But instead of doing that while carrying a rock in our hand, I wanted to give you guys a chance to do an exchange. See, because what's really beautiful about Jesus is the cross is that beautiful exchange for us where we don't have to carry these anymore. We can let those down and know that Jesus is fully, he's, a, he's just. God is a just God. He is good and his just is perfect. Our justice is, is rarely perfect. In fact, it's usually riddled with our own punitive, self-righteous desires to make things feel better. Or we mask it in the idea of doing something for people in a way that makes us feel better about ourselves. But that's not with God. God is able to exactly, perfectly, concisely cut at the heart where justice is brought in the most beautiful and horrifically scary way ever, all the while disposing himself completely of this unmerited mercy and grace for every single sinner that is brought near to him. And so there's little buckets by the communion. And maybe you're not ready. Maybe you're like, man, but this stone, it just feels so good to carry. It's like a little pet rock. You've named it and you're carrying it around in your pocket. Don't, don't go through the motions. But if you're ready, if you're ready to, to be brought into the inner circle of Jesus again, stand before him as a sinner, fall at the mercy of whatever his condemnation may be, recognize that he will not condemn you. Then exchange it. Throw the rock in the bucket. Grab the blood and the body of Jesus. And joyfully, joyfully partake of that which has made you whole before God. Joyfully take this and so exchange it. The buckets are by all the communion. 
And you guys can do it whenever you feel ready to do so. We normally take it together as a body. I thought this would be a better day to just individually or with your family or maybe as your gospel community, whatever you want to do, take it. There will be people available in the prayer room to pray with you. If you'd like to, it's back over here. But whatever you do, don't approach the throne of God armed and ready to stone other people. It doesn't, it doesn't work. And whether or not this scripture was meant to be here or in Luke 20 or 21 or at the end of John or we're not even in here at all, I can't picture a more true characterization of Jesus Christ that is completely congruent with the rest of scripture. A merciful, just king that is ready for all to be received that the Father has sent to him. So when you've done, you've taken communion, maybe you need to spend some time on the floor, maybe you need to stand and sing, do whatever you want to do. And just remember this, if you're feeling shame right now, just remember this, Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set beyond him. It was the joy that put him there, the joy of the freedom that we now get to walk in, that put him there. It's faithfulness to God in that. He chose that for the joy that was set beyond the cross. You too can have that joy. Just come to the Jesus that, that hung on that cross, that was buried, that rose again three days later and sits at the right hand of God and is interceding on your behalf right now before our mighty King, that we are now clothed in his righteousness and can stand in his presence and worship wholeheartedly, full of joy, no matter how many stones we need to be laid down, and maybe you guys are like, man, I got to drop a whole lot. I've been carrying a whole bag of rocks. Then do it. Do it. I promise you, you won't regret the lightness of not feeling like you need to be the judge. You won't regret the opportunity and the beauty of standing before a God who says, I don't condemn you. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, that's, we are so undeserving of all of that. Every single one of us sitting in this room deserves to be stoned to death. Every single one of us does. Not just for the sins that we've done, but for the sins we're going to continue to do, but yet, God, you have deemed us righteous before you by the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, forgive me for the ways that I have carried stones. Forgive me for my self-righteousness. Forgive me for, uh, for losing sight of the fact that I'm the woman that needs to be sat next to you. God, may we not be, may we not be people that just know you in our heads and, and ignore you in our hearts. May we not be a people that just go through the motions. And as we, as we stepped to the table, the Lord's Supper, something that you said you will not partake of until we are in your kingdom together, God, as we step into this, may we lay down everything. May we lay down the sins that entangle us. May we lay down the stones with which we are ready to judge someone. And may we just stand before you empty-handed, recognizing we bring nothing to the table, but you give us everything. God, forgive us for our... stone-throwing, self-righteous, stupid moments. Forgive us for trying to exact judgment that is only yours to do. Forgive us for 
for forgetting that we are in need of your grace every single minute, every single day. Lord, thank you for your mercies that are new every single day. Thank you for reminding me that your grace has been lavished on me. And Lord, for those that are here or those that are listening online or watching online that maybe believe they are too far from you, by the self-righteousness of others, we've, we've, we've displayed that, that you, you don't belong close to Jesus. God, please draw them closer. Let us experience your perfect justice, your perfect grace. And let us walk in it. Newness of life because of your spirit that indwells us. It's in the precious and beautiful and glorious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God 